This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowship. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. The title of our message is The Components of the Heart. The series we've been doing is Brokenness, and understanding the components of the heart is very critical when you have to or are being required to embrace your brokenness. What you're going to learn in this story from the tale of three kings is about the brokenness that David had to go through before he was commissioned to actually be released to be king. Before you can actually be a leader, you have to be broken as a servant or you will have no clue how to function as a servant leader. A servant is a broken man. He's a whipped man. He's, he's torn down. He is used and abused. Christ had to go through it. David had to go through it. We have to go through it. To be released to function in the full competency of Jesus Christ, the living stone. So the heart is the word the Bible uses to describe the whole of our interior life. So it's not just your physical heart. It's whatever it is that makes you special and makes you the way God made you. That is the heart. So when you get to the heart of the matter, you're getting to the real you. Not the fake you, not the one you learn to perform, not the one that that is highly mannered or doesn't have manners at all. That's all fakeness. It's the real you that God created you to be. That would be you functioning as the heart of God. So getting to that point, I think, is fairly significant uh, journey for us as Christians. But let's take a look at our attitudes of the week. People with pride do everything they can to fight against death of self, the I, or the desire to be broken by God or anyone else. Does someone want to try to explain to us why that is true about people with pride? Why why would they fight this? Do you realize there is not one thing that you fight in life? That is not based on this statement. But to see a person go from being slapped to actually turning the other cheek in a split second. Do you know what character that takes? Because 99.9% of the people listening right now would either back up and avoid the rejection. That's bare minimum. Get out of arm's reach. There are even more than we probably are willing to admit to that would actually slap you back. Or would guard the hit. Or would somehow come up with some type of offensive behavior. But most people go into withdrawal when they're rejected. Whether it's a spiritual or psychological or physical slap. That's defense. But to have someone step into the rejection, to have someone step into the next slap for the left cheek, that person is very, very rare on the face of the earth. You see, what, the, what has to happen from this side of my cheek is Steve Finney to move in and give them the left side of the cheek is to give them the opportunity to slap Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? What you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. The maturity the deeper life that it takes for a believer, an indwelt believer, to walk that kind of walk, 
is rare. There are people walking around. There are people preaching from pulpits. There are musicians singing, singing from stages. This whole exchange life. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. But as soon as you reach over to observe how they handle a slap, not that you do the slapping. The enemy is very good at that. And how they respond is critical. Here's the greatest test that I believe every Christian, indwelt Christian, is given every single day. Who beats you to reconciliation? Which one gets to the point of reconciliation first? That's what shows the character. If you are the second, the third, or maybe you don't even have a thought of reconciliation, you are pleading guilty to this. Self-protection. That's how it works. Because there's only one ministry in the New Testament that says we are given. We're not given the ministry of music. That's not in the Bible. Sorry. There are just gifted Christians who know how to play the harp. You understand what I'm saying? There's no ministry of preaching. There's no ministry. There's only one ministry that is mentioned in the New Testament that we're given. Someone please tell me what that is. Yes, please, if you have it. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself in Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, then you say, okay, well, what about preaching? What about the teachers? What about the eight gifts that are given as occupations? Those are actual vessels, the slingshot, to cast the living stone of reconciliation. You see, David's ministry was about reconciliation. God was going to use this vessel and his two instruments to literally reconcile his nation. You see, they didn't have any kings up to the point of King Saul. They were begging, begging, begging for some king, some shadow boxer. Someone's willing to fight for them. When God says, you already have me. I am your leader. I am your king. There was no reason for the statement, king of kings, lord of lords. Lord doesn't mean God. It means owner. Landlord means owner. You see, God didn't, God didn't need to have people in between him and his people. It's the people who required a mediator. Because it's easier to follow a human than it is God. So that's why we make God or humans into gods. The Greeks became professionals at it. They had a God still do for everything and every need that there is in creation. It's craziness. But that's what we're about to learn as we study the story of David. And it's interesting how God puts Saul in first. So I'm not going to tell the whole story today because that would kind of ruin things a little bit. And those of you who already know the story, it's just going to be an exciting reminder to you. Well, let's talk about humility. People of humility and brokenness are overwhelmed with the desire to die or to kill their self-life. For they know that it is a God-given desire to die daily. Put an end to your self-life daily. That, that mandate that is put upon us 
is a desire of death. To die daily is a desire of death. And there's also a passage that Jesus said that for those who love their lives will lose it. Those who hate themselves will gain it for life eternal. You see, we're so afraid to talk in the original language that Jesus Christ and, and the original disciples used that we're so afraid to use that original language that they used because it would be too offensive and actually push people away. You see, I'm slowly getting to the point in my Christian walk that if you slap me or you reject me, I, I just get this sense that I'm doing something right. And betrayal should be the first thing you expect when you get up in the morning. Should be the first thing. So that you're not interested in having a shadow boxer in your life, which I'm going to explain in a few minutes to you. There are so many Christians, even indwelt Christians today, that are literally kowtowing to the shadows casted by mere men. And they want to live in those shadows. They want to get close to famous people. Have you ever wanted the signature of a famous person? Would we act different if Michael Jordan walked in into this room? Or I know he's kind of an old famous figure, but I mean, would we act different? Yes, we would. When actually to God, they're lesser than you. Because the least among you are the greatest in heaven, and the greatest among you are the least in heaven. Do you understand that? We literally are living it backwards. Famous people come to town, and we roll out the red carpet. Spiritually, psychologically, and physically. Do you know that wealthy people rarely pay for their own meals when they go to restaurants? I've been with them. I can't, I can't believe in, in this, this principle that exists for rich people. As soon as the whole town knows you're famous or rich, you don't pay for your meals anymore. You hardly pay for anything. And here they got the money to pay for it. We have it backwards. You see, we should desire to die. We should desire to hate ourselves. But see, pop psychology says you need to love yourself. You need to forgive yourself. Has there anyone in here been given the power to forgive yourself? I've met a lot of Christ figures who believe they can forgive themselves and love themselves. Do you realize it's opposite of what Jesus said? He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life will gain it. But the enemy is brought into our educational culture to actually love yourself in order to prosper. Why? To become famous. Fame is a noted you are hung out a little higher than the other people. You're noteworthy. Quotable is what that means. You can quote me on that. <laughs> but that's what we've done to, to mankind. Here are the five components of the heart. These aren't going to be a surprise to anyone, I don't think. Is intellect, two emotions, three is the will, conscience, and spiritual. Now here's what these are for. From a God-given point of view, the intellect is to discover truth. So intel actually comes from an observation of what is provable. That's intel. So it's not lies, it's not, it's not made up stuff. Intel is something that is provable. Now to God, everything he says is provable. Proof. He's got proof in the pudding. With emotions, it's a God-given passion for us to love God. It's not to hate people. It's not to love ourselves. It's not to feel good about our ministry. It's, not, it's none of those things. It's simply to love God. 
to get those arms up for a spiritual, psychological hug from Jesus Christ. I can't wait to get the physical ones, but that's what it's for. No? What does pop psychology do? It puts the whole emphasis on emotion. Healing of your emotions. Healing of, of psychology. It's, the emphasis is always on emotion. When emotion is not addressed in the New Testament. It is taught, but it is not addressed. It doesn't say, heal yourself of damaged emotions. It says, renew your mind. Intel. The truth shall set you free. You shall know the truth, intel, and the intel truth will set you free. Not process your emotions and you will be set free. Emotions are for loving God. The will is for choosing his way. I am the way, I am the truth, the intel, and I am the life. Life actually is comes from light which comes from the breath of God. So it's, it's literally breathing. It's inhale and exhaling truth every day, all day long. So you can respond to God with loving him. So yes, the emergent churches do have it right that we're put here to love God and respond. Yes. That's the elementary milk. So you can pick up your harp and that you can pick up your sling and do what you're told. So it's a, it's a whole package deal. It's not just setting a ministry or a profession up for each one of these categories. Conscience. It's an internal alarm system that God put in there for you to know the difference between right and wrong. So if your conscience is bothering you, then stop. Pray. Ask God, what's going on here? If the first thing out of your mind is to blame or justify or lecture someone because of what you're sensing in your conscience, you're already off keel. It's the first person to reconciliation, to the ministry of reconciliation. What do I need to say? What do I need to do to bring that person, bring myself to the moment in ministry of reconciliation. Anything else is going to get you in trouble. That's why I'm not interested in hearing people's justifications after I seek their forgiveness. It's a non-issue to me. The only thing that needs to be happening in reconciliations is for each person to say, I was wrong for, list it out. Will you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. That should activate in the other person to say, well, I was wrong for, here's the list, will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Done. Finished. It is a final work of the cross. Jesus Christ does not, did not, and will not require therapy for you after the forgiveness of the cross. When we come to the cross, we lay it at his feet and say, I was wrong for, he picks that up and he throws it as far as the east is from the west and he never brings it to mind again. Isaiah says, very powerful passage, I think it's in chapter 42, but you please don't quote me on that. Could be a shadow reference. But it does say in Isaiah this, Behold, I wipe away your sins, your transgressions. That is the action and the guilt connected to the sin. I wipe away your transition. I wipe away your, your sin and wipe it away and remember not your sin anymore. So that, here's what happens. When we are laying that at the Lord's feet and he picks it and throws as far as the east is from the west, he wipes away that, that sin. So what we do, because we're taught this in our culture, is to bring it up again the next day because we still feel guilty about it. 
our conscience is still bothering us. Well, the reason why your conscience is still bothering you after you brought it before the Lord is you probably didn't go to the point of ministry of reconciliation. You probably didn't go to someone and say, I was wrong for. That's why it's probably still hanging around in your mind. That is a critical piece when it comes to processing forgiveness of the cross. Finish it with the ministry of reconciliation. Now, if we bring it up and say, God, remember that sin that I committed on, on Tuesday? I just, and you go into this whole thing with God again. Do you realize that you are mocking God? He said, I remember not your sin anymore. There's no reason for God to have a memory of sin. Do you understand that? He lets us have a memory of sin because if we sinned the second time, we're going to think it was the first time. We need memory of sin so that each time we sin, it calculates it as a numeric value in our minds. God doesn't need a memory of sin. So when he wipes it away, he wipes it away. If he says he doesn't remember it, he doesn't remember it. So what of us humanoids do is we, we uh, say that we forgive someone and we want to get into it and get into all the details. That'd be like Christ saying, okay, I forgive you, Steve, I forgive you, but sit down because we're going to have a long discussion about your sin. I don't serve a Christ like that. I serve a Christ that says the final work of the cross is the final work for sin. I became sin, so this did not have to be an issue of therapy. But it does not mean that we do not need spiritual guidance and direction because of our sins. Spiritual is to drink of the spirit of the living God. Here's the flesh part of intellect. It's used for rationalizing. Now the way we train people in reconciliation is you do not bring up the other person's sin. You don't say, well, yes, I forgive you, but I want you to know that, and they go into this rationalization on the why. Humans need to be satisfied with the why. Well, why'd you do that to me? be honest with you the only honest answer is because my flesh is demonic and ugly and filthy and loves to destroy people that's that's flesh so to have these psychologizing at 40 sessions on why the flesh wanted to show its ugly colors is kind of ridiculous Anytime someone says, I forgive you, but you know that there's something nasty coming. That does not demonstrate the power of the cross and the final work of Jesus Christ. The emotions is to serve various lusts and pleasures. The emotions were given to us by God in order to have passion for him and loving him. But he wants to twist those emotions so that you lust. Jane and I used to make the joke the first 10 years of our marriage that we lusted each other. Because we realize that true love has to be proven, tested, stretched, pulled, stomped on, tried. God tests whom he loves. See, love is proven in the test. And the scriptures are full of Christ's warning us of the trials and the testing. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you endure various trials. It's in the trial, it's in the brokenness, it's in the suffering that you actually find the proof of love. Not in America. We go... 
you're done, you're finished, I'm dropping you. I'm moving on. Conscience, or the will. Flesh is to choose our own way. God's way, our own way. There is no third way, by the way. I know that we have made a third way. But our way is the enemy's way. There's only two forces that I know of that are spoken of in the Bible. God and Satan. And everything, every conflict in the entire world, past, present, and future, are coming down to one final battle. The Battle of Armageddon. And last week we talked about how much blood and conflict and whatever is going to take place in that battle. But every argument, every conflict, every fleshly discussion, every lust, everything is the enemy using those things for that final battle. If you think and believe that God saves every tear in a bottle, which I do, I can guarantee you that Satan is saving every one of your fleshly choices. To rub it in the face of God to say, oh, these are your winners? These are your conquerors? These are your victors? He's an accuser. And he saves your sin. So when someone likes to bring up my sin, they are acting as the accuser. Because there's pleasure in accusing people. Fact, that's just the facts. There's no pleasure in forgetting someone's sin until you learn to walk in Christ in the way Christ lives and walks. Then it's fun to forget people's sin. Conscience becomes seared and thoughtless. And that's what it says in the New Testament. It, it talks about a seared conscience. But we're supposed to have a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, a seared conscience says, well, I don't care anymore. There's one word in the Western culture that got coined in the late 70s, got popularized in the mid-80s, and that term is, does anyone want to take a guess? It starts with a W. Huh? Whatever. Anytime a word takes off in a culture and becomes a monster overnight, I can assure you it is from the mouth of the enemy. And whatever is basically a seared conscience going, whatever, I don't care. I don't want to hear about whatever. It's a seared conscience. There's no sensitivity for the purpose of the ministry of reconciliation. Finally, spiritual, flesh-wise, is dead to God. Those are unsaved people. If you're saved, you're not dead to God. But if you're saved and the enemy is tempting you to think you're not saved, you're still suffering with the lie and the illusion of being dead to God. The unsaved heart is the best and most accurate picture of Satan's heart. Now, I'm not afraid to say it that blunt because I know that Satan is the father of lies. Satan is the father of the unsaved. You say, well, why do some people go to hell and some people go to heaven? It's because people follow their father. And if Satan is the father of lies and the father of unsaved people, they go to hell because... They follow their father. If their father goes to hell, they go to hell. This is not complicated, guys. But see, Satan wants to, to make those truths lukewarm and very emergent where people don't really go to hell anymore. I don't know where that stopping line was, but one popular author today says people don't go to hell anymore. Well, when did it stop? In the 80s? In the 40s maybe? When, when did this any more thing kick in? See, Satan doesn't want you to know that you're going to hell. What happens to the Father happens to you. Don't ever forget that. 
Whatever happens to the father happens to you. Satan knows that principle is true. Sin of the forefather. There's also blessings of the forefather. So if you're unsaved and Satan is the father of lies, and like Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, for you are of your father. He didn't stop there, folks. He actually named him Satan. You see, children go where their father goes. So when I got a new father, the heavenly father, I go where he goes. It has nothing to do with my behavior. has nothing to do with how many sins I commit or don't commit. I go to heaven because that's where my father lives. Now what Christ did so that I could have that privilege is the story of the gospel. Pretty cool. Not by my works, but by the works of the Son. The heart is born darkened. I think we understand this. Adam and Eve were made perfect. And then the first couple fell. Bad fruit started. And then sin entered into Adam's seed. And then all children born from that day were born with sin in them. And then, as it says in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short. Fallen short is the Greek definition of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The resting place of Abba. That's what that is. The resting place of Abba. So the passage that Dan actually shared with us earlier about being able to have that privilege to be in a new inheritance. So as Jesus called his father Abba, which means Dada in the English, it's the earliest expression of father. So Abba, father, when Jesus referred to Abba, father, he was saying Dada, king. It's authority, and I fear you, and Abba, I have an intimate relationship with you. That's what you're supposed to have with your earthly fathers. Abba, and then respect for authority. Darkened heart is warped. Too, it's without light. It's degrading. It's defiling. The unsaved heart is a life without Christ or the light of, of God indwelling them. This is why the Bible refers to the unsaved as a darkened heart. Please remember, you can have a copy of these slides by logging on to our church's website, heartlandfellowships.org. Homepage, scroll down on the right side of the column, and you'll see the audio sermons and also teacher's notes so you can get a copy of these slides. The word resembles, here's what Martin Luther says, one of my favorite old guys. The word resembles a drunken peasant. When you lift him up into the saddle on one side, he tumbles off to the other. That's what it's like for me counseling people who are just fleshly. No matter what you say to them, you're the bad guy. No matter how you help them, you're the bad guy. They just fall off one side and you pick them up to get them on the horse. They fall off the other side and you come around and pick them up. And finally, God says, leave them off the horse. Don't touch them. Leave them alone for a while. And that's when they experience brokenness. Our flesh topples to the side of either legalism or a license to do whatever I want to do. So the emergent movement, as you know, is filled with People who could be in the auditorium that are homosexuals, they could be people that have uh, oftentimes even killed people and they had justified reasons for it. They're just sins all over this auditorium and what they're getting from the pulpit is these very sweet sermons that make people feel good about themselves. They're not addressing the sin. As very responsible and mature pastors who have been in the pastorate for many years can easily tell you and agree to the majority of the people sitting in pews are unsaved. There's not as many saved people in the congregations of these churches than the pastors seem to want to admit to. 
Well, that's kind of a scary thought. Well, I do have the tendency to ask, why? And the answer that comes to mind oftentimes is, because they're not being told they're going to hell. But you have to have that defined. You have to, you have to tell them well, what that really means. What does it mean to go to heaven? What does it mean to go to hell? Is there a third place to go, like just the dirt? Oh, when I die, I just die. That's the whatever. That's called a seared conscience. The whatever is what sends people to hell. The whatever is what started the emergent church. Love, 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 but there is no conviction. There's no sting of sin anymore. Sin becomes fashion. That's the easiest way to say it. I always wanted to write a book and have that be the title is Sin Has Become Fashion. What was once right, says in book of Revelation, is wrong. What was once wrong has become right. That isn't to come. We're already here. So what used to be, just use the popular ones being argued by the politicians in their uh, debate today, is the issue of homosexuality and gay marriages. I mean, just 50 years ago, your 99.9% of the person, whether they're saved or unsaved, would say, that's called a sin. God does not like that. He will not adopt that. In fact, the word makes it clear what happens to people who practice it. You're not going to hear that brought out in these presidential elections or any other election fighting that's going on in local churches. What you're going to find, and I even got this out of the mouth of the horse of a local denomination, leader, state leader from a local denomination here, and that is they literally have certain number of years set out for the local pastors to adopt this before they make it mandated to accept homosexuality as a God-ordained practice. See, that's where we're going. What was once right is wrong. What was now once wrong is right. So people are going to be like, whatever. Why do we have a whole generation of young people going, whatever? Because the adults are lying to them. They're afraid to stand up and speak the truth. The best way to lie to someone is to cushion it in education. It's an old adage. It was taught years ago by very early philosophers. Our flesh erupts into either blatant disobedience or the deception of counterfeit obedience. Now that really is where most body members and, and church members are. If they could just sit through a service under conviction and they can get up and leave, that's what it is. I've lived there so many times, I cannot tell you how many times I felt good. I literally oftentimes took a deep breath when I got outside the church. Because the pastor was too convicting. Eh, wrong. That's called shadow boxing. The truth of the matter is, is God was too convicting. So what do I have to do with that conviction? I have to turn it into a right? Or I have to turn it into a wrong? Most of the time I would say, well, everyone does that. I don't even know of very many people that don't do that. The more numbers of people who sin is what makes the sin legal? Yes. You can all nod your heads to that. Yes. That's the Western civilization. The more numbers of people doing it is what makes it a non-sin. And once the numbers are high enough, they actually legalize it take abortion. I grew up in the years where we fought abortion. Where 90% of the entire, the entire nation fought abortion. 
But as soon as the numbers started coming in that there were more and more and more private abortions going on, and the numbers started being presented to the politicians, they realized the only way to get control of this is to legalize it. Marijuana is so far out of control in America. This is one of the popular things under the present administration's healthcare program, I'll just say it that way, is to legalize marijuana because it's, it's out of control. And then pretty soon marijuana will be more, listen to me, more legal and healthy than smoking cigarettes. It's certainly healthier for you. See how it goes? So pretty soon you'll have the legal right to have two plants in your window like they do in California. Not quite eight plants like they do in Oregon. Just gave Oregon some business. That's how it goes. Until you have a whole culture that is able to say what was once right is wrong. What was once wrong is right. Now before I move into the shadow boxing, I need to ask you a question. Could someone please give me an example of something that was once right that was wrong? We've given several examples of wrong to right. Someone give me an example. Praying in school. Now you guys aren't going to like me for this one probably. Probably get a couple emails. In fact, send the emails. I love reading them. But um, I never was for prayer in school. Never was. You see, the state schools belong to the state. And I thought it was cool when we were able to pray... But you see, if you demand actual rights of freedom of religion under this whole fight of prayer in school, then you need to allow every religion represented in America to pray in school. I don't want that in my schools. Do you understand what I'm saying? Prayer in school was for the purpose of the family. Because that is the faith that they chose to serve and be under. So there's a lot of wars out there that kind of fit that, but it doesn't. Here's a clear example. It's having someone preach the truth at the price of losing their life. It used to be the norm. Seriously, you brought a preacher in, circuit preacher, whatever. Pastor Walt, you probably remember some of those days. It was just expected that you were going to get knocked on your keister spiritually and you're going to become under conviction and there's going to be some kind of radical movement in your community while the preacher was in town. And, you know, that was the norm. They had tents set up. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of people would, people would come to these tents. And, you know, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not the way anymore. The way today is to have cute videos and songs and stories and stories and stories. Recently, my wife counted the number of stories and the, the most popular television evangelist in America today. And how many stories did you and Jess count? Fifteen stories in a half hour. How many times did you hear the Bible being preached on with absolute truth? That's where we've gone with the church. That's a right to a wrong. Now, when you are a bold preacher, there's something wrong with you. That's what's happened. The normal church is not normal anymore. The abnormal church, the lukewarm church, is now the normal church. It's kind of catching on, too. We're just building up some spit for the Lord, if you know what I mean. Seriously. I like a hot drink or I like a cold drink. On a cold day, I like a hot drink. And on a hot day, I like a cold drink. Nice, refreshing cold drink. But the lukewarm stuff makes you sick on either one of those days. Judge another is like throwing a boomerang. Here's what it's like. Number one, to judge, to pass a sentence or divide or separate. Two, every area you judge others is the, is the exact sin that you practice. 
Now, it may not necessarily be in a physical form. That's why in a flesh inventory, when I'm counseling someone, I want to know what bothers them. Do bars bother them? Do people who swear bother them? Do I want to know what bothers them. Because oftentimes that's what the enemy is using and sneaking up on them with. A lot of times they just aren't aware of it yet. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of who... Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. This is not an exaggerated statement. This is a statement of absolute truth. Kindness is what leads people to repentance. Therefore, if you are judgmental about others, you really don't want to lead them to repentance, but repentance. It's what it's supposed to be. Or do you think lightly of the riches of, of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Romans 2, 4. If you're interested more in getting the person to take ownership of this sin, you have a wrong motive. I know people who take ownership of their sins and they go to hell. Oh, I know I'm a murderer. I know I'm a bitter person. I know I'm an angry person. That doesn't free them. What frees them is repentance unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's only done through kindness. All the hard stuff takes place between God and Satan. And that is not a war we're supposed to fight. That is a war that is fought in the heavenly places. We are simply to do the simple things that God lays out the, for us to do. Here's the, sh uh, the shadow boxing I was referring to. Here is the timeline of the life of Christ in a discipler. That would be like you and I discipling someone, whether it's officially in an office setting or if you're just working with someone over a cup of coffee. Your goal is to lead them to the ministry of reconciliation. That's it. Each of these little marks here are events that take place. Some are more significant than others. But each is an event that leads them down the road of the ministry of reconciliation as they're living and walking here on earth. Now, someone who is into... Their reflection. I was driving by Dylan's yesterday and I glanced over at a lady who has come out of the store. She was walking on the sidewalk and I just had this feeling this was going to happen. Just had a sense this was going to happen. She turned and looked as she was walking down the sidewalk. She turned and looked at the, the glass and she was doing this as she was walking away from Dylan's. That person immediately in my mind falls into this category. Not, I can't guarantee that until I sit and talk to the person, but it was a pretty good sign. They are into the reflection. What they see is who they are. What they see is who they sense they are or maybe want to be or don't want to be so this reflection thing starts them off in a very self-life Christian way she could have been a true indwelt believer and each one of these marks are another mirror she gets up in the morning she looks in the mirror she's got to make sure she looks a certain way so that when people look upon her they are seeing what she wants to see of herself in the mirror. What did Paul say about I look in the mirror and I walk away and forget what I look like? He was describing a fleshly person. Looking in the mirror, making sure, okay, I need to lose about four more pounds. Got to get back into those jeans. And there's this self-evaluation to actually be approved by your own standards, which, by the way, 
don't exist with God. There's no standards of what size jeans you wear in heaven. Wait till you get in your 50s and 60s. Doesn't work anymore. And Satan knows that. So each of these self-proclaimed standards sets you in this path of destruction. What works for you at 17 will not work for you at 27. What works for you at 27 will not work for you at 77. If your identity is placed in the mirror, all Satan has to do is change the image of the mirror. Does that bring about any cartoon story? Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? You see, that image can change if God actually gave you an image of what your flesh looked like. Someone please tell me the image that would be in the mirror. Satan. We go to hell because we look like our father. To be given a new image, a new creation, a new being, we have to bear the image of God the Father through the adoption through Jesus Christ we're given the image of being a child of God. He's our daddy. He's our Abba. It's hard to, hard to swallow, I know. Now, this person decides, okay, I need to go find a discipler. Now, here's the problem. When you put your hope in the discipler, sometimes it's a pastor. Sometimes it's a Bible teacher on the radio. Sometimes it's a counselor. Sometimes it's a mentor at the school. Whoever, it doesn't make any difference actually. It doesn't matter if this is Billy Graham or Billy Bob. It doesn't matter who they are. Satan just wants them to be a shadow. When the size of the man is actually much, much, much smaller. But see, we need to make them bigger than what they are so that we can invest in them our image. Because if our image is bigger than what they are, then we're going to downsize them. Or we're going to want to upsize ourselves. So it becomes a problem. So disappointed by the life of the discipler, they began judging the discipler, labeling God by the flaws of the leader, and then drops the discipler, leaves the church, changes stations. We change leaders like we change the fashions of our shoes. Where it used to be, you stayed with one leader for year upon year upon year. It's kind of like having a dad. You're stuck with him. So you've got to work out the conflicts. Not so much anymore. What needs to happen is that this person who is having the ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs, and all the ups and downs are going more down than they're going up, is the person needs to invest in the life of Christ inside the discipler. If you invest in the person and their by what they teach, how they teach it, how they communicate it or whatever, you're going to start doing the shadow thing. And then you're going to start boxing the shadow. The truth of the matter being, the life of Christ inside Walt is no bigger than the life of Christ in me. I've met some of these spiritual giants in my life. And after you get to know them, they're not really so big. You see, because the life of Christ in them is just as big as it is in my grandchild who is saved. There is no difference. How much they know is interesting. The journey that they've had is interesting. But I'm not sure God wants me to get them to sign the book. You see what I mean? They are nothing bigger than the life of Christ. In closing, dark hearts made light. Back to our passage. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time that you stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life 
inherited from your forefathers. In other words, don't carry off the image of your father. But with precious blood, as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, because of the blood of Jesus Christ being shed to literally purify us. You see those tears that are saved up is to wash over. All that sorrow had a reason. All the tears from the martyrs, the persecuted saints. You don't have to go overseas to be persecuted. You can live in Sterling and get persecuted. You see, all those tears are washing. They are symbolic. Like the blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sins. The tears in which are being saved up that you shed over your own sins or maybe someone else's sins or because someone is being hurt and persecuted are for a, a washing, a purifying, a symbol of cleansing. And if you think that you're going to be cleansed by the standards of your forefathers, then you know, you've got to do some fearing. And the only way I can help you understand if you're living by the standards of your fathers is by the standards that come out of your mouth and that come out of your behavior. That's the only way I can find out. But if I know you're living and walking and breathing the standards of the living God, the first thing I'm going to see in you is the living God. And the ministry of reconciliation is everything is to work to the point of getting that person reconciled back to Jesus Christ. Not back to me. Back to Jesus Christ. But see, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Brings the person back to the same page as the person. I'm sorry that doesn't impress me anymore. I have lived long enough to know that those reconciliations are short term and they are fruitless. But when you reconcile that person unto Jesus Christ and Him crucified and they have a healthy walk in Christ, they'll have a good relationship with you. Because it wasn't about me to start with. It was about them breathing and having a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to pray this prayer. So anyone who's listening and from an online point of view, we pray for you. We pray that God touches your life deeply. And if there are sins that you are bound with, please, I pray, I, I believe with you that God is going to set you free. So now I pray. Through Jesus and his proclaimed redemptive blood, I affirm that I have been redeemed from all consequences of a darkened mind that was handed down to me in my family through sins and failures of my forefathers on my father's side all the way back to Adam in the garden. I specifically renounce strongholds of living off Christianity of other people. If there are any that are not truly saved, O oh God, that are praying this prayer. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would bring the conviction upon them and it would only come from you, not from any words of a prayer or not from anyone else, but just from you. In the blessed name of Jesus, I forbid any powers of darkness from, the, from controlling me or the family members for whom I am responsible because of the ground given over or given by my father's generation lineage that extend back three or four generations. I renounce such claim that the enemy might have because of their footholds. I stand firm on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a full sufficient release from their actions of rebellion that came against you, Father. And Father, we only pray in the power and authority of Jesus Thank you for joining us today. Heartland Family Fellowship is a local church plant here in Sterling, Kansas. Our fellowship includes the family and all levels of worship. Our mission is to bring families back together spiritually, relationally, and physically. Many people ask us what does that really mean or how does it benefit them? 
Well, it means that you can bring your entire family to any of Heartland's events. And we will work to keep the focus on God, Jesus Christ, and the body of Christ without dividing up the family at the front door. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family-integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowships.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a pile, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus fare.